We good? All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be with you. Um, and I think this morning it kind of hit me uh, as I was sitting here singing and praising the Lord with you that um, you know, many of you know that I sort of got my start in ministry here at Sojourn. And uh, this week I'll be uh, graduating from seminary. And so, yeah, um, I was just sort of a little emotional that I get to, in many ways, kind of come home and uh, preach the week before I graduate and sort of take the next steps. So really excited to be here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone will come around and bring you a Bible. And uh, if you don't have one yourself, this is Sojourn's gift to you. You can take it home and keep it. We'd love for you to have that. So as you're opening up to Hebrews chapter 2, you can also, if you want, as you're kind of flipping through the pages, uh, put a placeholder in Psalm 8. We'll be looking at Psalm 8 just for a couple minutes in our time together, but the bulk of our time will be in Hebrews chapter 2. So while you're opening there, I want to share with you an interesting article that I was reading a couple weeks ago uh, on the Wall Street Journal. It was talking about the importance and the power of having personal mantras, personal statements. And the reason for that, they said, was because the more we repeat something to ourselves, the more we say something, the more likely we are to believe it. Now, I think common sense and common experience would probably tell us that. But the article was pointing to the neuroscience behind this and was talking about, you know, the more you say something, the more the proteins in your brain and the chemicals and the neural connections and everything sort of pave a path in your brain for you to believe what it is that you're saying and repeating. And that's great. And many of you know that mantras that we have are sort of these short little statements that we use to maybe inspire us or to make us feel better about ourselves. So some of these mantras are more creative than others, and we say things like, Fortune favors the brave, or the sky's the limit. I think most of the time, though, they're kind of more personal and little short statements that we use to get ourselves through the day. And so we say, I'm successful, I'm kind, I'm generous, I'm a thankful person. Or maybe we say things like this, I am stronger than my addiction. Now, there's really nothing wrong with any of these statements. And I wish they were all true. But, you know, I think embedded in each one of these statements is a kind of expectation and standard that we create for ourselves. But what happens when we fail to live up to our own expectations? What happens when we fail to live up to the expectations of others? What happens when we can't muster the courage to overcome our fears or to feel successful when we're beaten down by failures? What happens when jealousy overshadows thankfulness or we can't help but compare our mistakes to the apparent successes of others? Inevitably, we're overcome with guilt and shame. Often, I think we become numb to any real sense of purpose or meaning in our lives. And if you're a Christian here, I think you know that we even start to doubt that God's promises are still true to us. I believe that many of you have come in here this morning with a burden of shame. Maybe it's a shame from failing to measure up to your own expectations. 
Maybe it's a shame that comes from failing to live up to the expectations others have put on you. Or maybe you have a sense of failing to meet God's expectations of you. And you see, it's in moments like these that we don't just need any mantra or any statement to make ourselves feel good. We need statements that are true regardless of what we do, regardless of what has been done to us, and regardless of how we feel. We need what is called objective truth, universal truth that isn't dependent on us in any way. That means we need truth to come from outside of us and not from inside of us. Our passage this morning is one that contains a rich and dense doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ is the term we use for Christ identifying with us and his putting on of human flesh and the human nature. The task before us this morning is to connect this doctrine with our everyday faith and practice. There are many implications of this doctrine, but perhaps none is more powerful than this. Because of the incarnation, we no longer need to live a life of shame and guilt, but we can instead live a life of freedom in the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And so my sermon outline this morning, it's simple. It's one point. It's one mantra, one statement that you can take with you every minute of every day and know with certainty that it is always true. And that point is this. Jesus is better than your shame. That's it. Jesus is better than your shame. And my hope for our time together this morning is that as we study this text in Hebrews chapter 2, you can leave here and know with certainty that Jesus is better than your shame. So let's jump in. I'll be reading from our text here in Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 5 through 18. Please give it your careful attention as this is God's word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our passage this morning continues the author's argument from where he left off in chapter 1. So let me kind of give you the big picture, not only of where we're going this morning, but also how the author shifts his argument between chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, as you all have learned about the last couple weeks, chapter 1 was all about how Jesus is positionally superior to the angels. And so verse after verse, the author asserted that Jesus is superior to the angels as the Son of God. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the author gave us this sort of implication, this application of what he told us about in chapter 1, that because Jesus is superior to the angels, we cannot neglect the great salvation that comes through him. Now, in verses 5 through 18 of chapter 2, the author continues this argument by telling us that this Christ, the Christ who was greater and superior to the angels, actually became lower than the angels so that he could save and redeem his people. In this passage, we learn what it took for Jesus to become a merciful and faithful high priest for us. He put on human flesh. He suffered the things that we suffer. He even tasted death for us. In other words, Jesus drew near to us and identified with us in every respect, and he did so without sin. And it's in this identification, this union with us, that we learn this powerful truth. Jesus is better than our shame. And we can be rid of our shame because of Christ's union and identification with us. And so let's unpack this in a little bit more detail. We're going to start in verses 5 through 9. And verses 5 through 9 sort of serve as a little bit of a transition section between what came before and what's coming next. And it's in verses 5 through 9 that our author quotes from Psalm 8. And so I want to flip back to Psalm 8 quickly. If you have that open, you can flip back to it or go to it on your app or whatever. We're not going to be reading Psalm 8 verse by verse, but I want us to take note of something. In Hebrew poetry, it's often the case that the main point of the poem is found in the middle of the poem. 
And so if we just sort of take a look at Psalm 8, we notice that Psalm 8 is nine verses. And it's in the middle of Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, that we find the text where our author in Hebrews quotes from. We find the main point of the psalm. Now, Psalm 8 in general is a hymn which celebrates God for his work of creation. And in verses 4 through 6, we learn that man is the height of that creation. Mankind, when he was created, was crowned with glory and honor, and he was to have dominion over the world. What is man, O God, that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that you care for us? Now, let's take a sidebar here for a second. I don't think you can talk about Psalm 8 here without saying this. That all mankind, that all human life matters to God. Doesn't matter race, gender, age, cultural background, sexuality. That all human life matters to God in or out of the womb is not really a question that's up for debate. What we do with that information is on us. But as we read Psalm 8 in Hebrews chapter 2, we learn that mankind has value, has glory. We were created with dignity and a certain kind of dominion over the world. So let's go back to our text in Hebrews 2. Our author quotes from Psalm 8, but we have to ask the question, why? Why does the author quote from this text here? Well, I think some of you may quickly just say, oh, well, that's, a, that's an easy answer. He's quoting from Psalm 8 because he's applying it only to Jesus. I understand why you might think that. After all, in verse 6, the psalm uses the phrase son of man. And isn't that the title that Jesus used for himself in the Gospels? Well, it is. So I understand why you would think that, but that's not what's going on here. Let me try and explain to you why. First, let's remember that the original context of Psalm 8 is to praise God for the dignity, honor, and purpose for which we were created, to have dominion over the world. All of creation was to be in subjection to us. But second, this purpose has been frustrated by sin and the fall. After all, it doesn't feel like the world is in subjection to us. Natural disasters, disease, conflict between man and man, every day. It feels like something has gone terribly wrong. And you're 100% right. Something has gone terribly wrong. And our author reminds us of that fact in verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to man. At present, things are not the way they are supposed to be. Third, 
Remember that verses 5 through 9 serve as something of a transition between chapter 1 and what's coming next in chapter 2. So you see what the author is doing here by quoting Psalm 8 is he's reminding his audience, he's reminding us of the value in which we were created, that you and I were created with dignity and honor and purpose. But something has gone wrong. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. And it's into this mess that Jesus comes and fully identifies with his people. You see, we apply Psalm 8 to Jesus because he is the fulfillment of everything that Psalm 8 envisioned about mankind. Jesus has become mankind as Psalm 8 says we should be. If you want to know mankind as we were created to be, says the author, Look to Jesus, this Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels and he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, tasting death on our behalf. It's when we look to him that we can see that sin, misery, and shame no longer have power over us. And so, dear Christian. Jesus is better than your shame because by fully identifying with us and uniting himself to us, he restores to us the dignity and honor and purpose for which we were created. Now, look with me at verse 10. Let me try and rephrase verse 10 for you in a way that maybe is a little bit more helpful. The pronouns here are kind of jumping around. It can get a little confusing. So let's try and rephrase this. It was fitting to the character and purpose of God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many of his sons to glory, that he should make Jesus Christ, who is the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Okay, so the verse is cleared up. But what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Was Jesus somehow less perfect before the incarnation? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. The expression make perfect in Hebrews 2, has numerous Old Testament references. It's the same expression in the Greek Old Testament that was used for the ordaining of priests to the office of priesthood. So let me just give you a couple examples. You can write this down on your note sheet or in your Bible. You don't have to flip here. I'm just going to give you two examples real quick. In Exodus 29, 29, we read this. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. In the Greek Old Testament, that's the same phrase as make perfect. 
And in Numbers 3.3, in a similar passage, we read this. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he ordained, whom he made perfect to serve as priests. So when we read our passage in Hebrews chapter 2, this is the nuance of the verb or of the expression that is being used here. Jesus was ordained to the office of priesthood. Or perhaps to say it another way, Jesus became fully equipped and qualified for the office of priesthood when he took on human flesh and became like us. And we know that this is the special, this is the nuance of the word here because one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is the priesthood of Christ. Indeed, even as we read at the end of our chapter here in chapter 2, we read of the priesthood of Christ. What does this mean for us? When we are overcome by feelings of guilt and shame, we become convinced that we are unlovable. How could anyone care for a miserable failure like me? And if nobody else cares about me, how could God care about a failure like me? Do you remember the story of the woman at the well in John 4? She was so ashamed of her lifestyle of pursuing men that she came to the well in the heat of the day. She couldn't be with the other women in her village who came to the well in the cool of the morning. And do you remember how Jesus came to her? How he empathized with her. He came to her with love and compassion regardless of what she'd done. And he said to her, I am the living water which can satisfy you. I am the only man and the perfect man, perfect husband who can satisfy you. And it was in that moment that that woman was known, she was loved, and she was accounted for. Friends, this is what it means for Jesus to have been perfected through suffering, to be fully equipped and qualified for his office as a merciful and faithful high priest. It means that he knows exactly who we are, even in when we are naked and exposed before him, when he sees all of our sin and shame, and yet we are still known and loved and spoken for by the God of the universe. And so, dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame. Because regardless of how you feel this morning, regardless of what you think, you are loved. You are known. 
and you are spoken for by our perfect, merciful, and faithful high priest. Now, look with me at verses 11 through 13. Here, I think we find the height of the passage, and it's my favorite verses here in the text. Look with me here in the second half of verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. We are getting a glimpse of what it's going to be like for the heavenly congregation to be ushered into the presence of God. And Jesus stands in the midst of his people, in the midst of his congregation, and he sings. How wonderful. I think most of us, when we envision what heaven will be like, We still imagine this sort of separation between God and his people, like God's going to be up there on his throne and the people are going to be somewhere back here still separated from him. You know why that is, right? Our sin and shame makes it near impossible for us to conceive of a world of love where there is no longer separation, where there is no longer separation between man and man, or more importantly, man and God. When I was in college, I went to a Queen concert. Is anyone else here Queen fans? Not just We Are the Champions, that's the only song you know. Doesn't count, all right? So I went to this Queen concert, and it was great. And many of you know, if you've been to a concert before, seen them on TV, most of the time at a concert, you have the stage with the artist, and then you have the audience, right? But sometimes, artists will have this sort of long stretch that comes out from the stage, where during the show, the artist can kind of walk to and fro. He walks out into the middle of the audience, then he can, you know, walk back, back onto the stage. At the Queen concert, they had uh, a pathway like that. And one of my most vivid memories of the concert, even though, I don't know, this was 15 years ago, something like that, not quite, Uh, 12 years ago, I don't know. Um, even though it was so long ago, one of my most vivid memories was uh, the whole band went away except for the lead guitarist, Brian May, who's also, he's a wonderful singer, uh, by the way, and he walked out to the end of the stage by himself with his acoustic guitar, and he started singing the song, or he's playing the melody to the song, Love of My Life, which is sort of this hauntingly beautiful song about heartbreak, and as he's playing on his guitar, the rest of the audience is singing surrounding him as he's in the middle of this pathway. And it was like in that moment, it was no longer Brian May and the audience here, but it was like he was with us and he was one of us singing alongside of us. And so how much more amazing is it that our Savior will one day stand in the midst of his people and sing God's praises over us? Dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame because he opens himself up to you and he sings for you. Now, look at verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. Why is this significant? 
Because, dear friends, when Jesus became like us, when he put on our skin, our flesh, and our nature, he suffered the things we suffered. He knows our pain. He knows our weakness. He even knows death. And after enduring all of that for our sake, if he can still say, I will put my trust in God the Father, then we have every reason to as well. Dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame because if Jesus puts his trust in his Father, then we can too. And that means everything God says about us is true. It's true. Jesus stands in the midst of his people and he says, Behold, I am the children of God. Behold, I, my siblings and I, behold, the ones I love and that have been given to me and that I will never let go of. Behold, I am not ashamed to let everyone know that they belong to me and I to them, regardless of their past, regardless of what they've done, regardless of what has been done to them, regardless of how they feel. Dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame because he is not ashamed of you. And he will never let you go. Let's close our time together by looking at verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children, that is, my brothers and sisters who have been given to me, the children of whom Christ is not ashamed, since these children shared in flesh and blood, he partook of the same things. And yes, that means Jesus assumed all of our human nature yet he was without sin. Now, there's been deniers of the incarnation since day one. Since day one. You read it even in the New Testament. It was a prominent early church debate as well, and people would say, oh no, that would be so humiliating to God that he would become man. He would never do that. Completely missing the point. Others would say, no, that's not possible. How could one person be completely God and completely man? Not possible. So this was debated heavily in the early church, still debated today. One of the church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, it's a fun name to say, he really got to the point of why the belief in the incarnation is an essential belief to the Christian faith. He responded to the deniers by saying this, that which was not assumed was not healed. And what he meant by that was, 
If there is a part of humanity that Christ did not take on, if he did not become completely human, then there are parts of me which are not redeemed. And so, for nearly 20 centuries, Christians have believed that when Christ became man, he became completely man. Every aspect of our humanity, flesh and pain, a reasonable soul with fears and doubts and desires, real emotions, real frustrations, real temptations. And he did so without sin. And he did so because there is a certain tyrant. This tyrant's name is the devil. And this devil wields the power of death, not as one who created death, but as one who wields death like it's a hammer that he uses to bludgeon mankind into fear and slavery to him. How sad and ironic is it that mankind who was created for this glorious purpose with this great honor and dignity to rule over creation as it was subject to him, that we have now become the ones who are subject and enslaved to fear and death. But, dear friends, Jesus is our champion. By taking on human flesh, by fighting the fight we couldn't win and dying the death we should have died. He overthrew the corrupt powers of this world so that we could be reconciled to God and that we would know the love of God for us in Christ. Dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame because he has freed you from the slavery and bondage which kept you shackled to it. Remember that we said Jesus became fully equipped and qualified. He was perfected for his role as high priest. He became perfected for this role by becoming like us. In defeating death, he was raised to new life. And even now, he's seated in the heavenly places, interceding for us in our temptations. Because he was tempted, he is able to minister to us when we are tempted. He intercedes for us even now in this moment, testifying to the Father of his love for us and that we belong to him. Listen. Can you hear him? Be still and know that he is your God. Can you hear Jesus praying for you? 
Do you believe that he is? If not, why not? Dear Christian, could it be that your shame has you so convinced of the lies that you are unloved? That you are an unknown entity to God? That you are so filthy in his sight that when you are exposed, there is no way he could possibly look at you in love this morning. Dear Christian, you need to know this morning that you are loved, known and accounted for by Christ. And whatever lies you're believing about your worth or sense of self this morning or your shame are just that, lies. The invitation for you this morning is to receive the truth of Hebrews chapter 2. To believe on this Christ, the Christ who, although he was superior to the angels in every way as the Son of God, was made lower than the angels, becoming like us for our sake. Believe on this Christ and be rid of of your burden of shame and guilt. But I must tell you that this invitation does not come without warning. I need to tell you the hard truth. Everything I've said this morning about Jesus being better than your shame is only true for Christians. And let me tell you why. Every sense of shame that we feel in this world is the consequence of sin, whether our own sin or the sins of others against us. At its deepest level, the reason for our shame is because we know that our actions, our thoughts, and desires, they're impure. They're unjust. They're greedy. They're corrupt. And no matter what we tell ourselves, I'm good. I'm courageous. I'm brave. I'm kind. Ultimately, it's not true. Our sense of shame is an indication that something has gone terribly wrong. The world is not as it is supposed to be. In our sin, we have lost the dignity and honor and purpose for which we were created. John Calvin, he was a Reformation theologian, he said that when this happened, we became frightful deformities of what we are supposed to be. Not only did we lose our purpose in ruling over this world, but we lost our purpose in loving God and being loved by him. To make matters worse, 
if we give in to this shame, it only further alienates us and isolates us from God. You see, because our shame, our shame is the opposite of God's grace. Our shame destroys. It causes us pain. It wounds and it isolates. It causes us to disintegrate in silence and alienation as we are overcome with feelings of worthlessness and rejection. But grace, God's grace, is a love that seeks us out, that comes to us when we have nothing to give in return. It comes to us when we are unlovable. It turns despair into hope. It transforms. It heals. It cures. It restores. It makes all things new. And so the warning for you this morning, friends, is that apart from Christ, sin and shame will have its victory over you. But the invitation stands for you, just as it does for every Christian in this room. Believe on Jesus Christ, and everything he has will be yours. Believe on Jesus Christ, and you can be rid of your shame and guilt. Dear friends, by uniting himself to us and identifying with us, Jesus proves that shame doesn't have the last say on our lives. When we receive him in faith, his grace does. This is the truth which comes from outside of us. This is the truth that is not dependent on us in any way. It's the truth we need to repeat to ourselves every day. It's the truth we need to sustain and guide us in this life until we see him as he is, face to face, singing over us in glory. Let's pray. Our God and Father, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we that you care for us about the intimate details of our lives that you care about our salvation, that you care to see us with you one day before your throne in glory. What is man that Christ became one of us, that he died for us, What is man that we have a faithful and merciful high priest praying with us and for us even now in this moment? What is man, O God? 
that you have made a way for us to be rid of our guilt and our shame and our fear of exposure before you. What is man that in Christ we are made new? Our Father, as we leave from here, we pray that your Spirit would wash us of our shame and guilt and we would leave here knowing with certainty that regardless of how we feel this morning, regardless of how we came here, regardless of what has been done to us in our past, regardless of what we've done to others, we would know with certainty that this Jesus is better than our shame. Help us to see him and turn to him in faith all the days of our life until we are before you in glory forevermore. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.